0: The COVID-19 pandemic and the state of uncertainty that it's locked us into is one of a multitude of disasters that have cracked open our understanding of the city in a host of ways. The pandemic disaster is continuous with certain stories about our unsustainable global order, and it has unleashed a pandemonium of ideas about what it means for our cities. Following the onset of COVID-19, SFU Urban Studies, together with our colleagues at SFU Public Square, And with the generous support of our Endowed Initiative in Urban Sustainable Development, brought together thoughtful practitioners and practical thinkers in a series of dialogues to hash out some of the significant urban impacts of the pandemic and talk through the implications for how we can move forward in its wake. everyone. Welcome to our episode of Pandemonium, our webinar series uh, for this evening. This is actually the final event in the Pandemonium series. So we have come a long journey for those of you who have been with us from when we started this series back in September 2020 and um, thank you, especially for those who have been with us uh, throughout that period for being part of keeping a lively conversation going despite the um, restrictions on gathering and the and the um, pandemic that we've been living through. Um, it's hard to believe that it's been as long as it has now. Tonight's conversation is called "Taking it to the Streets." And while, the Pandemonium series has brought in speakers from different parts of the world to bring perspectives uh, about the pandemic and its consequences for cities. We're really trying to bring the conversation back home to Vancouver this evening and to the unceded um, traditional and ancestral territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and tsleil First Nations. And um, There, you know, we're reminded particularly now with spring coming and the flowers and the new life sprouting up of the many generations of uh, Musqueam, Squamish and Tsleil-Waututh people who whose work uh, down through the past 10,000 years at least has um, made sure that spring comes in spite of uh, what else is going on. My name is Meg Holden, and I'm the director of the Urban Studies Program at SFU, and we are the co-hosts of the Pandemonium Series with our friends at SFU Public Square. This series is made possible by the Initiative in Urban Sustainable Development, which is an endowment that we hold from the um, Real Estate Foundation of British Columbia, and um, I just wanted to provide a bit of an overview of how we're going to work it today, tonight. And then I'm going to introduce our moderator for this evening, Francis Bula. So you'll see that we've got uh, an excellent panel of four uh, voices uh, to give us a different view from their perspective as artists and journalists about what has happened to our streets during this pandemic year that we've just been through um, we will also have a special first screening of a new film that uh, the city in color cooperative has made especially for us uh, and that'll be at about six thirty. in order to engage in the conversation you're welcome to use the chat Um, In order to introduce yourself to one another, let us know who's here. We do ask that you feel free to use your your name and let us know where you're coming from. Uh, It's always fun to know. And it also reminds us that this is a public conversation. So we do expect that the comments that you make are the same comments and questions that you would raise if we were face to face. Um, Also, we have this evening signing No. We have um, live transcript. so if you have uh, the need to see uh, the language transcribed, the, the words transcribed for you, if it's easier for you to read, um, then you can find the live transcript button at the bottom of your Zoom screen. You can also find the Q&A and that is a place where uh, we're going to look for questions that you have for our panelists as we get into the Q&A section in the second half of our event tonight. So please do use that. And also because even if we don't have time to answer all of the questions this evening, the panelists will be checking that box and we may be able to get some of your questions answered in text form in the interim. So we can go multiple use multiple channels if you do need any tech support, please do reach out to um, Public square who you can find in the participant amongst the participants. Um, and we will try and get that problem solved for you. I think that's it for me, Frances. So I will hand it over to you. Frances Fula is uh, one of our senior and beloved advisors of the SFU Urban Studies Program. She helps to make sure that we're keeping it real with the kinds of um, lessons that we're teaching about cities because she is a long and tireless serving um, journalist of urban affairs, um, writing for the Vancouver Sun, the Globe and Mail, and many other news outlets. Thanks very much for being with us tonight. Francis, over to you.
1: Oh, um, great. Thanks. Thanks so much for inviting me. I always appreciate um, getting to be a moderator because then I, I learn all these new things. Um, and uh, it's a. It's fun to be on um, panels like this with um, so many interesting people, so I I know a couple of people on the panel and uh, others uh, I'm just getting to know so it's going to be an interesting evening I think. So um, just to start this off, just before the panelists begin speaking, um, we had sort of a pre-conversation a few weeks ago about this. And, you know, one of the things or some of the things I think all of us were interested in, sometimes concerned by, sometimes excited by, was the different ways in which urban spaces got talked about and got used and got regulated or not regulated um, during the pandemic. Um, Obviously, uh, and, you know, public spaces, I don't have to tell this crowd, are incredibly important um, to cities. Uh, They are the places where people um, get to interact, um, watch entertainment, um, have a sense of connection with the community around them. Uh, So they're incredibly important, um, but they tend to be thought of in fairly conventional ways. And the, the pandemic sort of broke some of that. Uh, and you did see a lot of celebration of some of the new ways of using space, like um, you know, allowing patios on restaurants. And there was a wave of stories about uh, you know, European cities shutting down their streets and letting them be taken over by pedestrians and cyclists and playing kids and and so on. Um, what was less celebrated were were some of the other uses of public space that people you know sort of were more negative about often the general public, uh, because you know, all kinds of people were forced out into public spaces in order to socialize, because restaurants were closed or limited, all kinds of public venues were closed, even people's homes. People didn't feel that safe having um, visitors in their homes. So a lot of people were out in public space uh, and some of them got celebrated and others didn't. Um, And you saw a lot of shaming and reprimanding and concern going on about um, young people going to public parks or beaches with very little sort of context that, you know, maybe this was the only public place that they had to go. Uh, a lot of concern about people in the downtown east side, low-income people being out on the street so much and not social distancing uh, as they should. Um, again, sometimes with not much recognition that many of them had been forced out there um, because of the circumstances, Get hotels or um Places where they lived weren't allowing guests. Every Tim Hortons was closed or limited. Uh, The libraries uh, and community centers that they might spend part of their day weren't open. So there was a a very varying response to how people took to the streets. uh, That was covered in in very uneven ways by. Reporters like me and others. Uh, So I'm looking forward to this panel tonight for a fuller discussion about public space and how it was being repurposed and who was regulating it or not regulating it and who was using it and not using it. uh, And um, all of the ways in which um, urban life changed uh, during the last year. So, um, we're going to hear from four panelists here, two um, uh, journalists, although Harsha, I feel that it's uh, a bit limiting to call you a journalist. I first started interviewing Harsha when she was running the Downtown Eastside Women's Centre, and she is now um, the Executive Director of the BC Civil Liberties uh, uh, Union. Uh, We'll have, you know, people who are very grounded in sort of interacting in the public about um, public policy issues um, and sort of, you know, um, city use issues. Uh, And then we have two artists uh, with us as well, Jermaine Coe and Alana Garakey um jermaine is a visual artist and uh alana is a dance performer and urbanist um and uh i think as meg said earlier people's bios are available i'm not going to read out every um amazing thing that these people have done in their lives Uh, so you can read a bit more about that there um so we're going to start with Chris Chung, who is a journalist at the Tai. Chris I got to know at UBC, uh, and he's gone on to be a wonderful portraitist of parts of Vancouver that a lot of people weren't paying too much attention to before he came on. Uh, so um, I'll let Chris talk about life
2: in the streets. Thanks, Francis. It's good to see you. I think the last time I saw you, you were you were on Fraser and 49th, and I was just crossing the sidewalk. Oh, the yeah, side
1: that's right. We were probably both heading to or from Duffins. Oh, no, that's <laughs>
2: over on, that's over on uh, night. You were in yeah. a polo market, I think, that day. <laughs> but anyway, oh, yeah, right. Um, Yeah, this has been a really educational year to do reporting, um, learning so many new things. But I I really wanted to share uh, what I've learned about the city and city streets during COVID from someone who taught me the most. Um, Is the first slide up. Uh, It was a picture of... This guy. Um, so this is Stanley Woodvine. Um, Stanley is homeless. He has been for about 16 years, and he used to blog a lot. But nowadays, uh, most of his updates on are on Twitter. Uh, you should give him a follow if you're not already. And Stanley lives in Fairview in Vancouver, uh, and he very, very rarely ever leaves Fairview. And he depends on public spaces and semi-public spaces a lot more than most people. But at the beginning of COVID, as Francis was saying, um, a lot of the places that he depended on were gone. So no more of that McDonald's that he spent a lot of time at, um, no more coffee shops for him to go you know, online and communicate with others. Um, his phone provider wasn't open, um, so he couldn't pay his phone bill. Um, and the recycling depot where he goes to sell uh, the stuff that he bins, um, there was no washroom there either. So pretty much nothing was open around that time. Uh, but the problem for him and a lot of his homeless peers too was that if they ever loitered around a building too long, uh, security would come. So Even though that a lot of the office buildings along Broadway, like nobody was going in them at all, they were still being asked to, you know, please move along and not hang out here. So there was really nowhere indoor for him to go, almost nowhere outdoor for him to go. Um, And it's pretty cold at the time, too. So. The thing he he told me, um, you know, at the time was just, you know, got to keep moving, got to keep moving. And it seemed like this really cruel whack-a-mole routine for him uh, and a lot of his peers. So I really wanted to check in with Stanley for a piece. And so we ended up meeting up at a place that I thought was really emblematic of his situation. So that's the place that's in the picture. Um, I don't know if you recognize it, but uh, it's it's actually not in Fairview. So he had he had no choice but to leave Fairview Um to get some of his daily business done. So he ended up at Mount Pleasant. And so in that photo there, that's actually the Burgoo restaurant on Main Street. Um, I think Main and 15th. Uh, if you don't know it, that you can get a soup and sandwich combo for 18 bucks, not including tax and tip. But the restaurant wasn't open. So Stanley was able to camp out there uh, with his bike that you can see behind him. Um, and that was the perfect place to, to hang out because... Uh, Of that patio, there was some shelter from the rain. There was outlets for him to charge too, and he was also able to get some Wi-Fi. But uh, sadly, his you know gotta keep moving um, thing was what he had to do again. Uh, Next slide, please. So yeah, he tweeted out uh, what had happened. He was eventually kicked off of that property. Um, A lot of the time, people are accuse him of of stealing electricity. so I, I kept in touch with him throughout the year, and he raised a lot of really good points about our pandemic response and our streetscape. Uh, next slide, please. So this is what he had said to me. Um, you know he really felt like uh, a spectator just watching another big event pass by um, and not being in the parade so. He was saying that there was a lot of urgency uh, to add space to the streetscape, but he he was really seeing how it was prioritized for people with a certain amount of privilege. So for for people like him who are low income or homeless, like he is, he was seeing that a lot of space was being taken away. Uh, So the only washroom that he had in his neighborhood was one was only one. um, And it wasn't even open after dark. So he's saying, you know, why are we adding murals to this neighborhood, but not a washroom? Um, So space added for some people and space being taken away for others. So uh, next slide, please. Uh, I'm sure you saw a lot of this kind of happy stuff uh, kind of in the first few months, you know, beautiful mural at everyone's favorite, Aritzia Robson. They said, you know, home is where you are. Uh, and a lot of new places to have drinks as well uh, put up by the city pop-up patios, pop-up plazas and there was a lot of um, this optimism that I was seeing about reclaiming places for for people and pedestrians Uh, I think a lot of like new urbanists the Angell fans were really excited about sticking it to the car Um, but you know it's it's left to wonder who is all of this new stuff for so Stanley was saying how these murals seem to be uh, up to stop a neighborhood from looking sketchy so that people will continue to be spending money uh, and a lot of those parklets and plazas and patios they were mainly taken over by people who were buying food or drink from the restaurants nearby and then having it outside. Uh, Even before COVID, I noticed that a lot of those parklets were taken over by people who were paying customers. Uh, So on fourth, uh, there's the one that's just outside rain or shine, ice cream. I always see just people who are buying ice cream and like enjoying it over there. So yes, there is a lot of space that was being added during COVID, but there also seemed to be this Price for entry, even though this was so-called public space. Um, next slide, please. Uh, and as Francis mentioned, you know, for for a lot of people who are homeless or have bad housing, that that lack of space was pretty brutal at the beginning of the pandemic. So. No libraries, no community centers, uh, no McDonald's or coffee shops. Uh, washrooms are hard to find. Internet is hard to get access to. Uh, you know, Where's that information to learn about um, COVID? Like, where do they sit during the day? Um, very few shelters were open as well. Um, and so that really just left a lot of, uh, of the street and, and parks. Uh, next slide, please. So down to the east side, already not too much green space, but two of the parks were taken out of use as well. Next slide, please. Um, And so that puts a lot of pressure on the street. So I know a lot of people on Twitter were complaining about human waste and tenting on sidewalks, Uh, but it was really tough when there are no washrooms and nowhere to go. Um, Next slide, please. And so, um, yeah, in the, in the downtown east side, it was interesting to see, um, you know, this artist Smokey D very, really, really much aware of this. So, knowing that there wasn't too much information, uh, he was he he made some graffiti um, to tell people about uh, the regulation. So, I, I don't think we often think of space as the kind of media, but the sidewalk really acted as the bulletin board um, at this time. And final slide. So, yeah, there was a lot of of these really happy stories that I saw about reclaiming our cities. Uh, but you know, hearing from Stanley, it seemed like the streetscape was really reflective of you know what are the priorities of the society that we live in. So uh, I think in the event description uh, for for today was calling city streets the living rooms of urban people, uh, which is which is a great ideal. But then I'm thinking about you know who's the host and does the host have rules? Um, is there a dress code which people like Stanley often face? Is there a cover charge? So I mean, we're not done with the pandemic yet, but I'm sure um, you know we'll be we continue to tweak our streetscapes um, in the coming months and, you know, in the post pandemic, we'll be thinking about what exactly that's going to look like. Um, so yeah, I'm just wondering, you know, in that post pandemic future, are we really remaking streets for the changing trends and habits of, of select groups? Uh, or are we really remaking it to be more accessible and more inclusive and all of the all that good stuff that we imagine cities to be?
1: Great. Right. Thanks, Chris, and it's nice to be reminded of your stories. Thanks for putting those up. Um, so our next speaker is Harsha Walia. Um, if you want to turn on your video, um, and um, you know Harsha uh, would have a, a different perspective on this because this isn't just something that you're writing about; it's something that you're, you know, sort of fighting to make sure that people have uh, are not turned away or denied rights and and so on um, as they're trying to navigate uh, this new urban arrangement um, and being in the street so much. So go ahead.
3: Thank you. Thank you, Francis, and thank you to everyone who's here and to the organizers. Um, I'm here also on unceded Coast Salish territories, lands of the Musqueam, Tsleil-Waututh and Squahomish nations, and I offer that recognition, you know, not simply in the ways in which we sometimes do land acknowledgements, But also because when we're thinking about urban space, um, of course, all urban spaces, you know, always and forever, also indigenous lands, right? Um, And Glenn Coulthard, who's an indigenous author um, and professor at UBC, kind of calls the ways in which we imagine urban space in juxtaposition to indigenous land as a form of urban nullius, uh, drawing on terra nullius, right? Terra nullius being the colonial doctrine of discovery where Indigenous land was conquered on the false basis that Indigenous people didn't exist on this land, that the land was barren. Um, and so he's kind of used a turn of phrase um, to really question the ways in which we sometimes think also of urban space as absent um, Indigenous sovereignty and self-determination. And so I think in thinking about the reorganization of urban space, part of that question is, you know, what does this mean for Indigenous nations whose lands were on? What does this mean for the ways in which Nationhood has been reorganized. Um, And also, what does this mean um, for for wildlife and non-human life in urban space? Right. One of the things that's been really interesting um, across around the world, but particularly in our urban spaces here in the lower mainland is the return of wildlife, right? Like the return of of birds and bears and insects and creatures into our urban spaces as as they return into um, into their habitats. I'll, I'll just touch on a, a few things, uh, drawing on what Chris and Francis, you've already talked about, which is you know, who has access to the streets prior to the pandemic and how has the pandemic changed? Who has access to the streets and in what ways um, one of the kind of starkest examples of that, of course, is, is for homeless people. Um, and one of the things that we saw early on in the days of the pandemic was um, this rush to crack down, in particular on tent cities and encampments, um, which has always been part of the course of the kind of criminalization of, of tent cities. But co- the pandemic kind of gave new cover um, based on the threat of the virus, of the of virus transmission, right? So the province passed a ministerial order, ministerial order 150, that basically called for the decampment of three tent cities in Vancouver and Victoria. Um, And this happened even though at the level of the United Nations, the UN actually urged against decampment strategies, saying that, you know, decampments actually reduce the spread of transmission. It is actually a form of sheltering in place, um, whereas the decampment strategy works against that. People are then scattered and displaced. Um, And so that is one of the things that we've seen in the pandemic is, as Chris said, you know, not only the ways in which it's become harder for people who use and live on public space to access public space because there are fewer washrooms, there's less access to internet, there's less shelters available because shelters have had had to reduce their capacity. Um, There's less access to community centers, to food. And at the same time, as more and more people are forced to sleep out on the street, we have this kind of constant surveillance and criminalization of um, of campments and encampments Um, at the same time for those who are in housing but in you know precarious housing like SROs you're also dealing with of course the opioid crisis right and the drug poisoning crisis which has claimed more lives than COVID has in BC Um, and part of what's happened is often illegally there have been um, regulations barring people from having guests in their housing, particularly in SRO um, in SRO housing, and that's meant that people are using alone, which, of course, as we know, increases the chances of an overdose and of an of a fatal overdose. So we see the overlapping ways in which. The crisis of homelessness is layered with the crisis of COVID, is layered with uh, the crisis of the opioid crisis. And so all of these are, are working together in this time and impact the use of, of space and public space and our streets in such um, heightened ways. The other thing is um, that I would say is, uh, I'll just talk briefly about the use of city streets and protests. Um, one of the things that I think has been really interesting in the context of protest in city streets is the use of masks. And this has been a particularly uh, useful for undocumented and migrant uh, communities who are protesting, but not limited to them. And so, you know, for decades, undocumented people who are afraid of deportation, who are essentially living underground, who are living without full immigration status in Canada have often used masks to protect themselves and to protect their identity. Uh, in the context of protest, right? But at the same time, you're hyper visible while you're trying to maintain your invisibility. Um, But one thing that COVID has certainly provided cover for, and I think is an interesting kind of silver lining, um, not only for migrant and undocumented communities, but for many people who are engaging in acts of public dissent and are are deeply worried about state surveillance. Um, And of course, that kind of surveillance is increasing, as we've seen Um, You know, the recent report um, by privacy commissioners across Canada that found that law enforcement was illegally using facial recognition technology um, for for decades in Canada, um, including in BC so that kind of um, the allowance of invisibility in the context of public dissent, I think has been really interesting. and so I think that's an interesting use of public space in the context of public dissent. At the same time, we've also seen um, you know, very particular limits on protests and the kind of discretionary ways in which policing is happening in COVID and predates COVID. Um, in particular, one of the examples uh, earlier this year in 2021 was a farmer's protest, a solidarity protest with farmers in India that t- was, taking, was supposed to take place in Surrey and was COVID-compliant. In terms of meeting all of the regulations that were in the health orders at that time. Um, and but even before the protests started and even before the conditions could actually be, you know, vetted and checked by the RCMP in Surrey, organizers, a number of organizers of that protest were fined, um, whereas, as we know, other protests continue um, in other parts of our cities right and there's been uh, a very noticeable you can see like a social media commentaries constantly that indigenous land defense um, protests, for example, um, and this protest by farmers or for farmers in India received this kind of differential treatment which really highlights uh, this the discrepancy in policing that we already know mostly impacts Black, Indigenous, and racialized communities. So COVID's become a kind of cover um, for increased discretionary policing. Um, The last thing um, that I'll say that I think is important to to note in tandem to the use of public space, I know this conversation is is limited to public space, but I will say that, you know, as we're thinking about the increased reliance on on public space in these different kind of ways, um, and the ways in which we're increasingly kind of forced outdoors, is also to recognize the ways in which certain communities are actually facing increased privatization of space indoors. And here I'm thinking of the ways in which gendered violence has become really heightened during the pandemic Uh, in BC and across Canada, gendered violence has, you know, the reporting and crisis lines has gone up by approximately 300%. And so I think we need to be thinking about private space and public space um, in tandem. And in conclusion, I'll just say, you know, I hope one of the things that we're, realizing um, during the COVID pandemic, particularly in in regards to our use of public space, is social solidarity, right? That in order to keep any single one of us safe on the streets, we have to keep every single one of us safe. Um, and, I, and I hope that coming out of the pandemic, that is one of the ways in which we will reorient our, our use of public space.
1: Thanks so much, Harsha. Um... That's very interesting about the masks. Um, you know, uh, I hadn't thought about that. But yeah, for some people, it would be a comfort that now everyone's in masks and they're not so visible or so noticeable. Um, OK, next we're going to hear from Jermaine um, Co. Go ahead, Jermaine.
4: Let me just uh, share my screen. Um... Okay, well, thank you for uh, ha- having me. Um, I wanted to focus my presentation about the arts community on uh, by doing a sort of drive-by, super fast drive-by of some interesting and inspiring creative responses to the uh, pandemic, but also on some of the other productive ways in which the art community has uh, contributed some really essential work towards the wider recovery. Um, so first, I think we have to acknowledge really how much the pandemic has disrupted the ability of arts organizations to uh, deliver their usual programming, um, what with the arts definitively off of the list of essential services. Um, And we have to remember that the lifeblood of so many arts is is based on in-person and up-close experiences and the kind of felt connections between authors and audiences. So it really did require a fundamental shift and some kind of creative adaptations. And I'll point to some Uh, three sort of broadly different types of response on the part of the art community. Um, So first, uh, some organizations simply continue to try to do what they normally do, but move their programming online. Um, And I'm not going to dwell on that, except to say that the most effective of those were organizations who figured out that you could actually use digital space in a rich way like even though it's more limited in some ways that there's uh, it's more expansive in others and you can use the opportunity to create intimate experiences or to layer on additional stories um but instead I'm going to focus I'm focusing more on people who produced work that addressed these changed conditions whether um, online or by moving into the streets um, and most of my images are Uh, are uh, examples of this kind of work and I'm deliberately presenting them as screenshots um, in order to show the kind of disjointed way in which um, their audiences might've experienced uh, them. So these are, are folks who are producing work in face of a, a contradiction that artists face all the time, which is that uh, we think of the arts as being um, a luxury that is quite easily defunded when uh, during tough times, when in fact we we all know that the art is, is actually essential to helping us make sense of the world around us, you know, to help us think through things deeply, to help us um look at the poetry in the world around us and the bigger picture of our collective situations. So, um, you know, besides people turning in general to film and music and games and performances as a as an escape from the tough times, um, they also specifically sought out creative works that helped um, with this kind of sense-making to help us feel and, and, and grieve and feel the, dis- the, 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 the distance between us. So, for example, Raphael Lozano-Hemmers online memorial project that uses hourglass sand to um, draw and then erase portraits of people who've passed from COVID. Um, For myself, as things started to reopen, the Belkin Gallery at UBC asked me to help them uh, craft some creative reopening protocols that would help acknowledge how fraught this return to work situation was, especially for the young artists that who are their frontline workers. So I did some workshops with the staff and came up with an, uh, a comprehensive approach that, that included some engineering protocols to encourage physical distancing, uh, some communication design, and even uh, custom face masks that shared this extended metaphor um, using uh, the phenomenon of crown shyness, where trees go with distinct distance between them as a form of... Um, of, uh, I, I, I characterized it as, con- as sort of conscious citizenship um, and, and an a, and a, a attitude of mutual care, uh, where we keep our distance in order to keep everybody safe. Fall, I was asked to deliver a course on public art for the visual art department at UBC. Um, and at this point, we were experiencing such a disruptive situation that I didn't want to um, asked the students to make finished work and instead I asked them or I proposed that we go out into the city to really experience the actual ground conditions in different kinds of public space and then um, think about how they could actually act within these these conditions. Um, so my students ended up coming with up with some um, pretty sensitive... Um, exercises to do on these sites. So for example, um, when we visited Strathcona Park, some of the students did a workshop on administering naloxone, and they talked about that as a kind of act of empathy. So uh, some of the pandemic-specific artwork uh, that from this past year was really designed to help others by exercising um, their creativity or by sharing skills. So, for example, Natalie Pershowitz's, uh Daily Creative Challenges or the ones that I similarly came up with for the City of Vancouver staff. Um, and so that's related to the third kind of response that I wanted to mention, which is that um, a lot of producers didn't even try to pivot online or to make artwork as normal, uh, but instead they, they looked at the local conditions around them and thought about what they could do behind the scenes to sustain the health of their uh, wider communities. So in other words, they focused on doing another thing that artists do often, which is to build up their communities, whether at a local and neighborhood level or um, as campaigns in support of larger principles. And I wanted to mention that some of the work I'm showing you was already in in process before COVID, Um, but also um, the fact that the pandemic coincided sides with a social justice movement um, also means that now there's an even wider push for organizations to uh, really do some reckoning about who they should be serving and caring for. Um, and, and the answer, coming up with the answer uh, being their local communities. Um, so I want to show you some examples of the arts community doing support work. Uh, we had, for example, the printmaking co-op uh, in downtown Eastside called WePress Press turned their efforts towards running a, um, a soup kitchen in downtown Eastside rather than a, a printmaking shop. Um, we saw the Sobi Art Award give its 2020 award, uh, not to a single artist, but to all of the 25 long-listed artists, including Lou Shepard, whose uh, social distancing uh, dance score you see here. We saw the O'Dane Art Prize, uh, which is normally given to a single senior artist, instead given to a dozen not-for-profit arts organizations. Uh, We also saw funders adjust their criteria to allow artists to apply for funding for recovery and retraining activities. We saw artists um, create support organizations such as the Vancouver Art Labor Union. Um, And importantly, The drive towards um, a um, a universal basic income in Canada, as well as the push to include gig workers in the CERB program, those were both led largely by artists. Um, So these last examples show that the pandemic has actually furthered some creative thinking about policy. It's somehow pushed governments to think big and to contemplate previously improbable policies Um, the example closest to my heart relates to my ongoing advocacy work around uh tiny houses um and i'll note that it took the pandemic to get the city of vancouver to even finally agree to to even consider allowing tiny houses in the city so that's um you know hopefully the next front for for where i'm going to uh to uh be focusing my attention thank you
1: Thanks so much, Jermaine. That was wonderful. And um, one of those pictures made me realize we need we need more things on the streets to make people dance and move around in particular ways. That was lovely. The city, by the way, never has never given permission for these tiny houses. No, the it's only,
4: only now are, we, are <laughs> we able to have that conversation.
1: Yeah, yes, and yes. they're kind of shutting it down. Um, okay, uh, Alana, um, you're up next with uh, a completely different take on all this.
5: Go ahead. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, I think I'm actually kind of piggybacking on um, what Germaine has said. Thank you for um, all of the contributions so far and for including me in this panel. What I bring to the table is what I'm thinking of as a choreographic perspective. Um, as you'll see in my bio, I kind of have two lives. One is a professional dance artist and the other as um, an academic who looks at uh, performance and um, urban space. So my dissertation focused on dance in public spaces and asked questions about how these practices can kind of reorient the social. Uh, so I won't spend too much time detailing how difficult uh, the pandemic has been for the art sector. Jermaine um, has laid the groundwork for that nicely. Uh, in my, my portion of the sector, in the, in the dance world, um, this has been felt really intimately and resoundingly. Uh, this is a form that relies, for the most part, on embodied co-presence and on the gathering together of people, both in the creation of the work and the sharing of the work. Um, so it has been a really big deal for the arts sector and for the dance uh, sector in particular. Uh, we've all been asked to pivot in, in uh, all sorts of interesting ways. And I could spend a whole seven minute allocation talking just about how the word pivot is being used, this super um, physiological term, which is being used often to talk about a turn to the digital, but we don't have too much space for that. Jermaine's done a great job, I think, of laying out the ways that many um, artists and performers have managed to make this pivot uh, to greater and lesser success. And in a lot of cases, this is reorienting our relationship to public space. I'm thinking of decidedly jazz dance works, which is just recently um, produced their piece in the windows of their building so that their audience who is outside could see it from the streets, uh, drive-through dance festival in Seattle, or uh, uh, door-to-door dances in Toronto, which has like a dance for a hire, which has dancers coming to dance outside the windows of long-term care homes, lots of other examples. Some closer to home, looking at Justine A. Chambers' uh, Semi-Precious, which I think does a really interesting job of bringing the private home spaces together with a digital public space, uh, working with students from Toronto in a totally different approach. Zine Kwan of Dumb Instrument Dance, also Vancouver base, has been um, renting a space in downtown Vancouver and she's been using it to offer up a uh, solo COVID safe residencies to black indigenous and artists of color. And then in the second image there, this small beautiful, she's also been doing, um, some of this community sustenance work uh, that Germaine referenced, having dancers who also make beautiful things, bring those beautiful things to sell so that they can make rent. So you can go to um, this space, Morrow, downtown, and you can buy soap, necklaces, et cetera, made by dance artists so that they can survive uh, this pandemic. So that's one thread of my research and my interest and my world. And then another thread, Uh, that I think has uh, maybe something to offer to this conversation is around bringing a choreographic frame to our use of public space on the daily. So not so much thinking of formal choreographies by choreographers, but thinking about extending my dissertation research to think about how the city choreographs us always already every day, how a sidewalk directs, directs our movement, our orientation, our flow. Uh, So that's been an interest of mine, and it has been just simply, um, I think, fascinating and important to watch those choreographies change under the parameters of uh, COVID-19 and the physical distancing imperatives. So we all of a sudden are being asked to carry with us this two-meter bubble. And I'm sure that everybody here has had some version of the awkward sidewalk passage where you're trying to figure out if you are supposed to go in the grass or how much space you're supposed to give. So I think there's I think A, there's a really um, interesting and important set of choreographies there that are cropping up around just how we navigate the pandemic. Um, And B, I think this can call attention to the way that the city is always already organizing flow and bodies, et cetera. Um, And there's a formal kind of interest there for me as someone who's interested in choreography. But I think this also links to broader social justice questions around access and use of public space, So for example, if we take kind of this choreographic lens to look at the Hastings Street Corridor during the pandemic, thinking about um, Chris's earlier references and too to how many of the support spaces that folks who live on the street would normally have access to and didn't any longer and the increased density, body to body density on the Hastings Street Corridor and thinking of various calls to consider closing down car traffic on Hastings so that people could actually spread out the way that these physical distancing protocols were asking them to. That's just kind of one example that pops to mind is a way that looking at um, our actual use of space, our orientation and our flow through space with this kind of choreographic take might actually yield out to, um, to larger issues. I'm not the only dance artist who has started thinking in these terms. Kate Elswit uh, doing research parallel to mine has recently published um, dubbing the term coronasphere. So here she's taking the notion of the kinosphere, which is a dance-based uh, notion, and applying it to this two-meter bubble that we've been asked to keep. So it may be new for a lot of um, pedestrians to imagine their bodies as the extent to which they can reach from side to side. Um, for dancers, this is something that we've been trained to attend to. So I think there's, uh, there's something uh, really interesting there and maybe a degree of embodied knowledge that might um, be useful as we move forward and move out of this pandemic. Um, I think that the the experience and the, as I say, the embodied knowledge of um, dance artists might actually be um, useful in terms of any decisions around um, urban planning and shifts to the way that we relate to one another in the city. And I um, I think there's real potential for that. So I'm at my seven minutes, I believe. I'll leave it there, but uh, could certainly say more.
1: That's amazing. Everyone has been so uh, adherent to the time limits that we're actually three minutes early on our schedule. So that's good. Um, I noticed in the chat, Alana, someone um, noted that sidewalk choreography has become more complicated with the increased number of dogs everywhere. Uh, yeah.
5: <laughs> yeah, absolutely true. Absolutely true. Just life on sidewalks. And also as a mother of small children, um, when you factor the dogs and the small children together, it gets ever more complicated. Agreed.
1: So sort of on that line, there's a lot of different things we can talk about. And um, we're going to have a little bit of a discussion among the panel here. And then we'll have audience questions after the video. Um, but um, just uh, I'd love to hear from all of you. Personally, how did you use space differently? Uh, what what were things that you did differently? Uh, and um, that's number one. Why don't? And, and number two, you can answer them both together, and maybe they kind of blend. But what's something that you would have liked to have seen uh, in terms of changing? the way people could, could use public space. Like there was a pretty limited um, number of responses, you know, kind of, allowing patios for restaurants, closing off a few side streets, putting up this, the orange cones here and there, which as far as I can tell did nothing uh, and so on. So there, there were fairly limited responses really to um, the changing nature of, of public spaces. And I know for, for myself, I live part halfway between Dude Chilling Park and Robson Park. One of the things I loved was we used the parks a lot more, our family you know to get together even though we have a backyard but even that felt like we there were too many people for the space sometimes so um, we often went there it was a lovely experience because you'd see people kind of dotted all over the park very carefully and it was a mix of people you know Uh, it, it wasn't so much like the, you know, what Chris was describing with the patio spaces where you just have to buy something uh, in order to, you know, be in the parklet or the patio area. Um, it was all the usual users of the park, um, plus these new ones. Um, so that was something that I felt really worked uh, during the pandemic. And I would have liked to have seen, was there a way of creating more spaces that could be used so easily by a wide range of people. So anyway, that's mine. Um, Go ahead, whoever wants to tackle my little double set of questions
2: here. I'll tackle the the second one first, uh, Francis, but I was was really hoping that there'd be more use of of parking lots during COVID. Um, Like at Richmond Center, of, of all places, they have a section where there's valet parking for the Cactus Club. I don't know why that exists at all, but they seem to have taken it away and instead they have a spot for... Uh, any any food delivery people to park their cars. But I, I just, you know, with with so much parking lot space, uh, I was really shocked that there wasn't more that seemed to be um, done. The, the one thing I did see that was really interesting was that uh, this Kudwara in Surrey, and so they usually have uh, the free meal where you can, um, you know, go inside like no matter what faith you are, or if you don't have a faith to, to go and, and enjoy. And rather than having people go inside, they had set up a food truck in the parking lot, so anybody who was a trucker or some kind of frontline worker who just wanted to do it drive through style, they could do it. So, uh, yeah, I, I really liked how, you know, in a, in a suburban landscape, they adapted it for um, a place where, you know, the language is much more car oriented and it seemed to work really well.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: Others? I'll it uh, go. Um, I would have. Um, liked or one thing that I appreciated in some way was the, um, uh, the fact that um, a certain amount of red tra- red tape was at least suspended, if not completely cut, um, and you know the reason I, th- I think that one of the reasons that we don't didn't see more of that of these kinds of pop up uh, things was because um, that red tape wasn't completely suspended. Like to to some extent, like the the, the, the there there it felt like there was a bit of a there was a bit of a wild west, uh, in some way, like you could just sort of like try, try stuff. And, and, you know, maybe there, maybe it would fly. Maybe it would, maybe it would be allowed to exist for, for some amount of time. And so there was like this kind of, you know, a little bit of a c- certain kind of weird dystopic utopia, utopia in, in, in which one could try, try doing things in spite of um everything that was, that was going on. So I would have liked to have, um, for that to have morphed into a kind of trust in people's judgment to act you know reasonably uh if you know know, they weren't creating public hazards and so on
1: yeah i think you're doomed to disappointment there I I i covered the city and all i've heard from business owners and associations is that after the first kind of wild experimental phase where it seemed like you could Line up propane tanks yeah. as your barrier from the street. If you wanted, um, it's become very much you know that the that city inspectors are now out like oh your railing is not high enough or too high and you're not allowed to have a cover and you know they're doing they're back to sort of their enforcement job. But you're right, like if they had just not only allowed the patios but said go for it, see what else you can create. Might have been really interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, especially some of the streets that they tried to shut down, but all they did was put up the orange cones. Yeah. Um, You know, if they had allowed people to maybe come up with stuff on those streets or something, they might have turned into more interesting pedestrian places instead of just a street where the driver has to go around the orange cone to, to go down it.
5: Yeah, Yeah, that would be one thing I would say. I um, uh, just a little experiment, friends and I were testing out those slow streets um, and found that it was a perilous experiment. Like they were not slow streets. There was nothing slow about those streets.
1: I I live uh, around the corner from one and I walk in the middle of the street so as not to have to do the sidewalk dance, you know, thing. Uh, And yeah, it's you there's it's not doesn't feel that safe
5: yeah yeah I think um, I do feel like there is potential there to have made more use of the street spaces um, for pedestrians both to to make that sidewalk dance easier and just to be more inviting uh, so that people can get out and get active I mean physical and mental health have been such a huge um, issue throughout the pandemic and that that is one one Possible, you know, support. Um, that it it would have been nice to make that just as easy as possible. Um, so that's one piece. And how do I use uh, the city spaces differently? I definitely uh, any of the regular commuter pathways that I tend to travel. Uh, were, as for many of us, um, suspended. So that just wasn't uh, those usual routes. That wasn't the choreography I was following. Um, And I tended, especially towards the beginning of the pandemic to be straying out of the city center. So trying to find a way uh, into spaces that maybe weren't parks, because if you recall, so many of those parks were closed early on um, and playgrounds as well, um, but that were just kind of uh, spots that, that didn't have a lot of folks, so semi-natural-ish places where we could stretch out and play um, and be, be uh, distant from, from mm. others.
1: Yeah, I see some people in the chat talking about it was a chance for them to find new parks. And someone said they tried to get approval from the city to project images in a parking lot, but the city refused. So there we go with the creativity. <laughs> And another person is talking about like they could have done something, uh, a campaign by artists titled there could be a public plaza here, like sort of maybe marking marking off spaces as potential public plazas, you know, just with something on the street. I think that's what they're talking about. Um, yeah, sort of, it, it sounds like people are talking about like pushing the the bureaucrats and the regulators to you know loosen up anyway harsha i'm expecting something different from you
3: yeah thank you for that question i'll i'll also uh maybe take a stab first at that second question um i think for me i was you know very disappointed though perhaps not surprised that you know we at our at our municipal level across cities in the lower mainland We didn't do more in terms of ensuring that people who use and live on public space had places to live and places to be. And so whether that's taking over space in the, I actually similarly thought about parking lots, empty hotels, because of course, tourism was going down. As we know, a lot of schools were not being used because shortly after spring break, schools were closed for several months, almost until the end of the school year. And then of course, the school year itself. So there was just a lot of Public space that was, you know, sitting empty while people are continuing to to live on the street and are are hungry on the street, are homeless on the street, and are forced to use, you know, again, forced to use drugs in unsafe situations because often they're they're using alone. And so, all of that to me was very disappointing that we um, didn't use our public space in a way that kept everyone safe. Um, and tended to prioritize business interests over the lives of people who were desperately made even more vulnerable during the pandemic. And I think the second thing for me was that, you know, in the middle of a health pandemic, um, we didn't take on, at the, again, at the level of the municipality, any kind of attempts to curb the kinds of things that make people unsafe. Here I'm thinking particularly about, you know, again, decriminalization of drugs, decriminalization of sex work, all of which is regulated federally. But there are steps that our cities can take to make sure that we are suspending enforcement, again, in the middle of a, of a health pandemic and largely in public space, right? Policing largely happens in public space. Um, so those, um, those two things in terms of um, who accesses public space and how and what was prioritized in terms of use of public space and the ways in which disproportionate policing continue to be meted out. During the pandemic, um, I think we're, we're both huge disappointments and really just made it so much harder for people um, in the middle of a health pandemic who are, who are already subjected to those, those forms of violence.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I did really notice in the downtown east side, uh, there were a few things that were put out, like a few um, picnic tables, I think, on Alexander near maybe the gathering place, Uh or if I'm not getting mixed up with my centers and uh, near the downtown east side women's center, there's one, but very little compared to how much time such a large population has to spend out on the streets there. And again, a lot of people thought this was a sign that there was vastly increased homelessness. And I don't think a lot of people realized that this was partly, these were people who, sort of have some kind of crappy home but they don't want to stay in it all day it's horrid and um they want the social interaction and there was no other place to go so they were all packed onto the streets and i have to say i thought the city did a really uh not great job of trying to clean up because it was messy looking but because people had nowhere you know, nowhere else to go. And there was a, a sort of lack of respect, I thought, by the city. Uh, it's sort of that their attitude seemed to be, well, you made a mess of this and now you just have to live in it. Uh, you know, I drive up and down Hastings several times a week and I, I really noticed that. But you didn't answer the first question. What's something you did differently? <laughs>
3: Um, I'm I'm still mulling that one. Um, maybe I'm in, I'm in like pandemic denial. Like, I don't know. Everything, (laughs) everything is different.
6: Um,
3: yeah, I'm yeah, just truly, I think for me, probably how I used public space differently really was, um, transit for me. Um, I rely almost exclusively on transit, um, similar to what Alana was saying. And so for me, trying to figure out how to navigate the city in the absence of, Mm -hmm. public transit uh, I mean not in the absence of public transit but initially in the pandemic that was very unclear um and just going on on a different schedule and more um that was that was certainly one thing um but in some ways it in some ways it hasn't changed right because certain neighborhoods like the downtown east side the pandemic is one of many forms of crisis so you navigate space in almost the same way right there's there's just there's always people on the street um, but the intensity is different. And so um, one of my one of the places I used to work at the the downtown said Women's Center, which you mentioned, Francis, you know, that used to have a capacity of upward of two to three hundred people a day and then going down to 50 people. Right. So um, that doesn't mean people are homeless, but it just means people are in the neighborhood in a, in a different kind of way and experiencing that differently. So um, in some ways, the flow didn't change. It was just intensified
1: mm-hmm yeah yeah um I noticed in the chat someone has um, brought up cycling <laughs> uh so obviously that was a big flashpoint uh and and tussle in many cities, like not just Vancouver, I noticed in Toronto lakeshore Drive was like their number one most popular cycling spot during route during the pandemic like people just poured out to it and now they've decided not to re you know have it as cycling only and of course there's the debate in stanley park um over cycling and i think we all as harsh is saying we we were navigating the city a bit differently i mean i noticed i started walking in alleys a lot more just because i got sick of the same streets i wanted to see something different so we all changed a bit the way we we moved around. Um, did any of you did any of you get embroiled in the whole cycling? How much space for cycling there should be um, issue, or no? That's that's just being fought out on private radio.
2: Too vicious, but um <laughs> what you were, were talking about earlier, those those orange cone barrier things. Yeah. I had seen people show photos of uh cars having like hit them and then there were plastic chunks like yeah. falling off. So as as a pedestrian or as a biker, you know, even seeing that sign that says, you know, this is a slow street, you know, you're welcome here. Um, seeing the fact that a driver would, you know, be ignoring that isn't very reassuring.
1: hmm Yeah um ariel uh, in the chat is saying that downtown east side has nice wide side streets which could be maybe used in the future for more street markets or art cooperatives and so on and yeah i think they, that really there's a sense that the space down there that was so critically needed except for a few patio areas was not really repurposed <laughs>
4: Well, one thing to say about about slow streets is that you can either mandate them or they happen naturally because of the amount of activity that's happening on the on the streets, right? Like, you can, you know, maybe just to, 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 well to some extent, of course, you can you can design for them, but then, you know, naturally, once there's a once there's a crash of 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 activity, you you just you cannot move with the same kind of um, speed as one as one normally or as as, you know as cars would want to so you know there's Mm
1: -hmm. yeah I mean I often feel one of the most effective things in Vancouver is the fact that we have these fairly narrow residential streets often with cars parked on both sides so you really actually can only one only one car can go at a time and sometimes a car and a bike and that's it and that sort of as you say forces people to slow down yeah
5: you would hope so. Although I, I do have to say that it was my experience that people did not slow down. Uh, and and although I would love to be optimistic that like um, if we use it, they will slow. I also feel like uh, I'm I'm not about to cite my dance in the middle of the street, <laughs> street, right? Cause it <laughs> feels dangerous. So I think there has to be a bit of a, a bit of give and take kind of from both sides, from the design end too, um, just in order to make it safe to kind of use the space. Uh, and claim it in that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: So um, here's another question to make your brains hurt. Um, what do you think will last in terms of the use of public space, uh, the creative uses of it, or? last, or maybe it's just starting now, it's like a new initiative that you see something happening that maybe could be one of the lasting impacts, something we haven't talked about yet. But yeah, what do you think will last?
3: I can start. I mean, maybe this is less squarely in the realm of um, public space, but maybe I'll I'll offer two things. One is I'm hoping that one of the things that will last is, you know, particularly on, on the end of employers and workplaces, is the fact that there are ways in which we can organize work that doesn't rely on the, you know, deeply capitalist nine to five commute to work employer surveillance if you're not physically present in an office, the assumption that you're not doing your job. Um, but really that, you know, the flexibility that's needed, um, particularly for caregivers and parents and, you know, people with disabilities, um, that there are ways to orient work. That includes working from home. That means you don't have to commute if you're, uh, you know, a low income worker from outside of Vancouver and spend two hours on the SkyTrain or stuck in traffic. Um, so I'm hoping the ways in which we conceive of time and work um will, will stay. And I mean, that implicates public space within it, of course, Um, or, you know, how we use public space isn't simply for, for commuting at six in the morning and 6 PM at night. Um, And I, I think related to that is um, just how we think of public space and each other, right? Like that this pandemic, one of the things that hopefully stays is, um, you know, as we're, so deeply in, in modes of isolation that it forces us to think about communities that are that are actually isolated all the time, whether that's people who are incarcerated or people who are forced to live on the streets who don't have access to housing. So all of the things that's kept us somewhat safe in this pandemic, um, I hope we have a heightened awareness of that, right? About how we move and use space and have access to security and safety. And that that's something that should be extended to all people. Um, I don't know if that'll stay but I'm I'm optimistic that you know as we make analogies about being on lockdown that we're thinking about what lockdown actually means for people who are on lockdown in prisons for example um so I'm I'm hopeful that that stays and you know related to that and around ex- you know access and accessibility is the ability to to do events like this on screens and to make them accessible to people who can't gather in person so some of some of those kinds of things
1: yeah yeah um I mean, I think it did make people think about isolation and realize what snowflakes they are, because, you know, we are all having such a hard time with this. And yet there are others in much you know, worse and more long term situations, for sure. Um, Jermaine and Alana, what about the arts community? How do you do you think that there might be some permanent changes as a result of that?
5: Yeah, to be piggyback a bit on on what Harsha suggested, I do think um, that both in in terms of work, I think that the I think there's been a lot of fast development on um, in terms of online platforms for hosting events and for um, just working. So I think that that I don't I don't think that we've like I don't think we're going to remain in in a perpetual pivot, but I do think that those um, networks and platforms are are there, and I. I imagine that there will be um, a version of that that is, continues to support uh, the dance and arts community. So one of the um, images that I showed there, Justine Chambers' work, that was actually like facilitated by the fact that she could teach students in Toronto via Zoom and that they could mm-hmm. co-choreograph via Zoom and that they could perform via Zoom. So Um, I don't think that that's ever going to be really the preferred mode, but I do think that there's kind of a boost, a boosted interest and um, expertise around like screen dance, which is a whole genre of dance that, um, that I think is interesting. I hope... um, I, th- I think that the pandemic has been kind of a crash course in the kinesphere for the public. Um, that some of us have really excelled at, and others have done very poorly at. But just a, a like a next level understanding of how you occupy space and how how you occupy space in relation to others. Um, and I, I I feel like there's kind of maybe a twofold legacy that could that could come out of this. One being that. Um, maybe the optimist in me thinks maybe, um, we collectively folks have, have developed a tuned, a sensitivity to how we take up space, um, in a new way that might have just a little echo that'll carry forward. We'll just be that much more tuned into who we're passing on the streets, et cetera, and, and how we're, how we're moving. That's one thing. And the other is that, um, I've noticed, and this has fluctuated a bit throughout the pandemic, but, um, that there's kind of a, a, there are social consequences to to the distancing, um, even in that kind of passerby anonymous mode. So when I'm moving out of the way uh, for somebody on the sidewalk at different phases in the pandemic, I've noticed that it's either like an eyes averted, like, oh, oh no, let's make space in this like kind of uh, th- level of threat that you're trying to navigate, which is, that's a different I mean that's not, maybe not different but it's like an extreme version of the way that we relate to each other in public already right like I'm not sure that I was always thinking of of the kind woman down the street that I'm passing as as a potential threat up till now or me and my children as a threat to her so that's one thing that I think we're going to have to tease out um or on the flip side this like um sort of choreography of care where I'm like kind like we make eye contact we make an extra effort to make eye contact Because your mask means that you can't see me smiling at you. And there's this like extra connection in the pedestrian passerby interaction. So I'm not really sure which way I would, I don't have a prediction about where that's going to land. Probably depends on all the things, where you are, who you are, what color skin you have. I don't know, all the things that shape how we relate to one another in public spaces. Um, But I think, I feel like there's been an an interesting, um, like lived inquiry that we've all been acting out every day and I'm I'm be curious to see what happens in the in the next while around that
1: not to mention the weird facial expressions we've all developed as we try to communicate like above our masks the eye crinkling and various weird things that some of us have taken up
4: (laughs) Jermaine yeah I um I mean, one thing that I that I think will stay, um, and was one of the things that I had, uh, I didn't respond to your other question about what how you experience it differently was, the um, uh, greater importance of the neighborhood and having um, services are within walking distance of of you, and this is, uh, you know, related to what Harsha was saying about the reorganization of uh, of uh, work life to include you know, the possibility of working from home and, and so on. And and um, so, yes, some of the changes that I think will stick, uh, I mean, that Alana mentioned the, the, the moving online and the development of uh, platforms to support that. I mean, I think in many cases, we're overdue. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we were overdue to have a, a platform to replace people you know, traveling halfway around the world to go to art fairs, for example, right there—that's a thing that did, that did not need to happen. And so the the um, the sort of so, you know, hopefully I I'm hopeful that the, somehow the commitment to degrowth and to a like a reduced kind of um, consumption around uh, uh, or reduced, you know, I guess, yeah forms of consumption of art um where where maybe like the um maybe less money goes into complicated um uh uh, structure and more goes towards um towards the art uh, artists um so I uh, you know and another thing that I'm hoping related to that uh sticks around and I and I and I have uh, I have hope that it will is is the recognition that the production of art um is not a thing that happens in a vacuum. It's a thing that requires supports of, ver- of various kinds. And now we've started to re- recognize that those supports could include childcare. They couldn't, in- they, they, they could include, you know, learning, learning new, learning, retraining to learn new skills to operate in digital world and, 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 and so on. So, um, uh, you, I- I'm hoping that those kinds of, um, a, a awareness about the, the the need for community sports is something that sticks around.
1: Great, and then Chris, um I don't know if you've thought about this, but you know, since you're the closest to me and what you cover and stuff like that, and I'm thinking about it, I'm wondering if you are. But there's been a big change in suburban patterns. Not we, you know, all of us, I think, are kind of city dwellers and. So we've really noticed what's happened in the central city, but, you know, every, every um, commercial broker I talked to says that suburban spaces were much busier, you know, because people were out in all day in those suburbs and so they were at the local malls and the local, you know, Olive Garden and the local, you know, all the things, the restaurants out there were busy. The Earl's downtown was empty. The Earl's out in wherever was, was busy. Um, So there was a different pattern out in the suburbs. Uh, And um, I think a lot of people are wondering if there's a continuation of working from home, that's going to change the suburbs. Like people will want a bit more urban stuff around. They'll want different patterns because they're using where they live differently. What do you think of that? Yeah. Is there so- anything else you want to
2: say? I feel like it's super hard to do that kind of forecasting, but anecdotally, I mean, I, I feel like I've been trying to avoid Vancouver parks just because there seems to be so many people out there. Um, I I live right by the border in Burnaby and I feel like I've been spending a lot more time out there. Um, but, but seeing how people have been gathering, um, like, like, Meeting up together in like bunches of cars, like in a parking lot just to be together. Um, or in certain malls too. Like, we, I guess we don't really think of like a mall atrium as a kind of a sidewalk. But I noticed that, you know, Lansdowne, it's, it's usually a, a pretty empty mall. Uh, but then they fanned out their seating like entirely. And it seemed like it, it was a place that worked. Um, and especially for a lot of people I've, I've seen who are like senior there who wanted to like read the paper or hang out with their friends, um, they were able to do that. And much more distance way um yeah and uh you know alana mentioned that 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 sphere and i was was thinking about that a lot too because there seems to be this new kind of sidewalk ballet that we all have to be doing um and i've experienced both of that you know being more aware of if there's like a senior or or a parent or a caretaker, like with a child and to make sure to jump out of the way. But I've also had a lot of people too, who don't seem to be aware at all and just walk into me. Um, so I don't know where that's going, but I I, I hope it would be in, in a place where we are a bit more aware of, of who is around us.
3: Yeah. Um, one thing yeah. that I... Oh, sorry, go ahead. Sorry, I was going to say if I could add one quick thing, because I'm actually a suburban dweller. <laughs> I don't live oh. in, in the city. <laughs> but I just, I want to echo what y'all are talking about, because I feel like I've noticed that difference a lot. And I think mm-hmm. the other um, factor to take into account, of course, is the the restrictions on, on um, places of worship and faith. And so in suburban areas, particularly for immigrant communities and seniors in immigrant communities and recent immigrants for places of faith and places of worship, our spaces of cultural connection and congregation, where those have become restricted, then people are looking at public space differently, right? So um, in Gurdwaras, for example, with those restrictions in place, malls have become a site where a lot of elders will congregate from you know different communities. Um, and so I, I just wanted to echo that because I, I see that a lot um, in the suburb where I am. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
2: and it's interesting that it's you know this is a a, a private caretaker who is providing a kind of public space too.
1: Mm-hmm. and there's problems with that because then they can exclude who they want to uh you know and there's always been an issue with that um i was going to say even though i was sort of disputing germaine on the tiny house thing in vancouver it's true that vancouver is still very resistant like um counselors are interested in the tiny house concept but staff is just like no it'll never work and if, if it If we allow it here, it's going to be 150 grand per trailer and, you know, things like that. But we are seeing other communities opening up to it. Like there's now a tiny house cabin, sleeping cabin village in Duncan. Um, Victoria's looking at how to create sort of a container house thing. So you're right. It has opened up some space to discuss that in cities that probably 10 years ago would have said there's no way that we're even going to consider this for a minute um just vancouver is very very resistant uh i find so we'll see if that
4: changes definitely tried to have these conversations there and um was not finding uh- yeah, because did you for reception? You have the picture
1: of the little house on wheels, right? Is that something? That's that you something
4: built? that I built, yeah, and I have done yeah. exhibitions around, you know, showing a lot of um, back uh, of uh, producers who've um, who are looking at different kinds of options for smaller dwellings and uh you know there, there are lots of there are lots of precedents for how um one can build reasonable and safe very small dwellings um
6: yeah
4: it's just it it, always, it's a it's a question of political will and well uh, but it to also there hasn't been
1: my experience in covering this for many years is it's always run up against a fear on the part of hardworking social activists that this is just a downward slide you know like that we should be providing people with larger spaces and that by conceding and letting people live in these small movable homes that somehow this is you know kind of going to lead to eventually nothing for them Um, so that that is an issue it's not even just the city it's it's been this resistance on the part of housing advocates so I don't know how you deal with that one.
4: Yeah, for sure. I mean, in 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 uh, cities where they have managed to find ways of uh, of uh, legalizing tiny house communities, it's often happened on things like uh, on sites like um, mobile home parks and and mm-hmm. RV parks and so on that tend to be on the outskirts of the city, so you're mm-hmm. not to so. Yeah, or else they're on private lands like church parking lots. Here there's mm-hmm. there's there's a good example of a use of a of a parking yeah. a, of parking lots, right? Um uh
1: there's a lot of comments coming in. Uh from um, the attendees. And I think they have a lot of questions too. So I've suggested to Meg that what we do is that we watch the video right now um, that's being prepared. And then we take uh, we let um, people the, in the attendees ask questions.
0: Great, thank you very much, Frances. So um, one of, as we talk about the panel's perspectives on the changes that we've made and then the changes that are going to stick uh, one of the changes that occurred amongst some young urbanists in um, in Vancouver is that some of them came together during the pandemic to form a new cooperative, um, and so we're joined tonight by the City in Colour Cooperative, and in preparation for tonight's panel event, they launched a photo submission um opportunity, and they received photo submissions called, the hashtag was 2020 in three words. And so it's my pleasure to introduce two of the co-op members, and they also happen to be recipients of the SFU Urban Studies Alumni Award in in community engagement this year, which they won even before doing this. So um, they are people to watch, Amin Chandi and
6: Dion Koh. Oh, thanks, Meg. Um, so hi, everyone. I'm Dion Co. And hi, my name is Amin. Uh, the video
5: that you're about to see, as Meg mentioned, is called 2020 in three words. Uh, in making this, we simply asked our communities to, to describe their 2020 in three words. Uh, we put a call out for submission and received 50 photos uh, featuring a diverse range of expressions.
6: Yes, so as discussed in the panel, uh, COVID-19 has left a permanent mark with how we inhabit cities, especially with how public spaces are used or unused. Um, And as we'll see in the video, um, for some people, COVID-19 has been a source of growth and self-reflection and necessary rest. Uh, But for others who did not share the same privilege of sheltering in place or working from home, COVID-19 has been less rosy, as we will see with from our friends at the Bidders Project.
5: Yeah, we hope you enjoy our video. I think Rachel is going to play it. No? Thank you.
0: Thank you so much, Dion and Amon. And I know that, let's see, can I find it? Yes. That um, the City and Color Co-op also invites you to go right now to that link um, that I've just put in the chat window and enter your own three words, please. And we can continue the uh, very beautiful and expressive um work that you're that you've started here and i hope that it continues
1: i was very struck by the one child in that video who was loving it more time with dad sleep in (laughs) it was was a very different perspective um you know it would be interesting to have something just you know children's responses to all of this um Anyway, that was beautiful. Um, So uh, we have more questions. I just suddenly realized uh, that there's a whole, there's a bit of a list in the Q and A. So um, I think um, Harsha is going to have to leave us soon if she hasn't already. But um, yeah, so um, the everyone who's here, um, someone was asking in the Q and A. Whether people noticed a gender difference in the use of public space, Um, you know, I guess we all got familiar with the. There there was a lot of laughing about it. That typically it would be a woman wearing a mask, the man not. The woman would distance, the man wouldn't. In a couple, you know, we heard a bit of that. So that's a, a little bit of a stereotype out there. But what did people notice in terms of? not just maybe gender but you know gender or different groups how they use public space
4: yeah i, guess, yeah, I would add um, race to that um yeah I'm that's super what i meant super when highly I said, conscious I'm these days that yeah that if i were as an asian person were to be out on the streets without a mask that would be inviting um
5: mm-hmm.
4: violence right or,
1: Right. And someone else in the chat was mentioning that, you know, most of the attacks on Asian people have been out in public space. Um, That's where it's happening. So.
5: Yeah, I think that's really, um, I think that's really important and like. uh, Gender, I think, has been a, an important piece, and I um, have some thoughts on that. But I, I, certainly wouldn't want to occlude the issue of um, raced violence and especially anti-Asian violence um, in the context of the pandemic in public space, for sure. hmm Chris, anything? It's
1: to-
5: been
2: weird this year. I've, um, I, I, I really wanted to like whenever there is that like conflict of two people about to pass each other, who is the one that moves out of the way for who. Um, and this this year, I've had so many people who do not look like me. Oh, they, they never like, they never move aside. It's always, they're just like going to a straight, the, going towards the straight path and then me having to step aside um and i've wondered if there is some sort of race thing to do with it too um like i like i do feel that there is more of um like a spotlight on me if i'm in certain parts of town um and yeah i've definitely felt like a lot more Comfortable if I'm going to a part of town that is, you know, much more of an enclave, and I know that, um, you know, a lot of people feel like an enclave is like very, um, you know, secluded. People like keeping within themselves too, uh, but I feel like for a time like this, it just it, it feels really, really comfortable just to be able to be in some kind of a public space with people who who look like you, and you know that you won't that get that kind of attention.
1: Yeah, I mean, I have to say, I always feel more comfortable shopping with, in Richmond, where there's a high number of Asians, because I felt like they were going to respect the public space more than um, elsewhere. So I was always more comfortable shopping at t and than maybe the local um, bilo or something like that, because I, I felt there were differences in how people respected public space, and um older white people weren't always at the top of that list. So,
2: yeah. And it was, it was interesting to see, um, at least in the first few months that the, the maps that were coming out too, um, showing the proportion of COVID cases was, was quite low over there.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, another question in the Q and a from Uriel. Uh, Can I back is,
5: to the gender piece? Oh, sorry. I'm you. sorry. No, that's yes. okay. Um, yeah. I just want. I just didn't want to lead with that. But I do think that the gender piece has been really um, interesting. And I think, I mean, there's been a lot of press looking at the way that um, parents and mothers in particular have been um, kind of overlooked in terms of support during the pandemic. Um, I know from my own experience as a mother of two young school age and preschool age children, um, that it was like quite a nightmare to try and juggle um, full-time work while being the primary caregiver um, for my kids. So, the way that we used public space—I mean, there's a lot of research out there on gendered use of public space pre-COVID—and I think that I think that is a really interesting question to look at during COVID. I don't have all the answers. I do know that I, um, just in my small peer world, I was seeing uh, that the caregiving for children who were out of school. Um, Did This is a generalization, but it was accurate in what I witnessed did fall to the female um, identifying partner in the in a partnership. So I was seeing um, fellow mothers out with their, their kids trying to find a spot to run around in fields for a couple months. And so I think I do think that there's um, definitely, I mean, I'm talking about kind of those narrow years when you're, when you're tending to school age children, but I do think that there's certainly something there um, that would be worth looking at.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I I I think it was well I have four grandchildren and so um and who all live either in our back backyard or a couple blocks away and so yeah, it was very I saw how much work it was taking um to do things with the kids uh when you know there were all these restrictions on public space and sort of like community center drop-ins weren't open anymore uh you know all kinds of things like that uh yeah
5: yeah and I don't mean to um I said it was nightmarish it wasn't it was it was bliss to spend time with my children so the the child that you saw in the in the um beautiful video compilation those were my children and I enjoyed Mm -hmm. that too and also it was physically impossible to do that and balance the workload that I was being asked to maintain so just those two things together were oof for for many women, many 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 parents and women.
1: Hmm. Yeah. Um. So skipping around a bit, um. But uh. In in terms of topics, um. Uriel is asking how plausible would it be to give per, um, for the city to give permission to residents to sort of repurpose their sidewalks, fix them up. You know. Um. And I would extend that it's not in the question but to the street sort of we were talking about just the city closing off streets doesn't uh you know seem to accomplish very much but if there's something organic that's organized um uh that can actually slow traffic down because there's just people using the street so uh i'm not sure if Um, how you comfortable you or if you feel like you're knowledgeable enough to say what the city might permit but maybe you know of some examples or something like that like do you think that's a strategy that maybe cities could be pushed on just allowing residents to do more with the street
4: um there is um there is for example a portion of the um sorry the department that is responsible for murals at the city of vancouver which is called the integrated graffiti uh integrated graffiti removal program but they also do murals um which is the kind of the weird thing but um they do have a stream that allows community members to propose and and um realize uh, murals and then there's programs within the city that are things like um uh planting the boulevards and so on and agreeing to to be the caretaker of the of your boulevards or the roundabouts and so on i mean that's a, again a measure of um red tape that that needs to <laughs> bind around those things to make them happen um but you know there is also increasingly uh recognition on the part of planners about the value of um uh what's called tactical urbanism. And that's, so when I showed you the picture of where, and I took my class to Leaside skate park, um, I did so because that was a really good example of a space that was um, simply built by the community without approvals, without, without anything. It was like uh, in this underused or unused underpass that skateboarders at one point um, started you know, adding concrete elements to, and uh, it has now, after many, many years of, of use and development, become um, an, one of the officially recognized skate parks within within Vancouver. So that's an example of a kind of community-led initiative that that then won uh, approval because, you know, it, it, it was, it, you know, eventually seemed to be safe enough uh, within the realm of skateboarding which is a risky activity in itself but yeah um so there are there are official routes and there are you know then there's just go and do it <laughs> and uh, if you do it convincingly enough then maybe uh maybe it gets to stay or something something
1: yeah someone just mentioned like street hockey that's a way of slowing things down and it reminds me of a, something, an article I read just recently that said public parks had to be created once car culture forced kids off the street. It used to be that kids played on the street in front of their house uh, all the time. And then as it became, came to seem more dangerous, then cities had to create these sanctified park spaces for children to go to uh instead so um you know partly what people are talking about is just taking that space back by you know having those activities again uh, sorry i'm just seeing messages here
4: um, Anyway, that's a street hockey game. I would, I'm sorry. Now I've got the the wheels turning. <laughs> yeah.
1: Oh, I know one thing I was going to say is uh, in my intersection, an artist by the name of Julian, who you might know, because he's done a few things around town and it's on the St. George blue way, but in the middle of the traffic circle, they put concrete and set up chairs and people would gather there uh, and just chat. And I, sat there a few times and it was really remarkable how it slowed the traffic down because people would be so startled as they were driving when they saw this group of people sitting in the traffic circle in the middle and then when they came past you you were at the same eye level with them so you were looking right at them Mm -hmm. and it really slowed traffic down um, because they were suddenly encountering humans at a different level eye level and place than they would expect in the middle of the street um aphrodite had a question that she wanted to ask do you want to just
6: come on hi sure um so i a question that looks a little bit ahead to going into post pandemic um is about this uh, dealing with the 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 experience of the pandemic as sort of a, a collective trauma type of Experience there's been articles that are coming out that are starting to talk about this a little bit, but wondering about um everyone's thoughts on how we we kind of commemorate or memorialize um what has been experienced with the pandemic, um, you know, discussions about like dealing with grieving with loss that happened, um, while of course at the same time celebrating once the pandemic is over and we can do more things. But what are your thoughts? I, I feel like um I'm sure there must be some important roles uh, for the the creative and the arts community, um, if we're going into this sort of memorializing and commemorating things um, that would probably involve public space quite a bit.
2: Yeah, I don't have an answer, but an interesting thing was. Uh, something I found out about what happened last time, so with the Spanish flu, uh, and so in doing the research for this piece, you know, I was I was wondering why, like, there seemed to be this black hole of of memory around it, um, and in talking with some experts, they were saying it it was just absorbed into the trauma of of the war at the time, and so the people seem to be much more focused on that, like, you know, they they weren't scared to be out in public um, and social distance uh, or anything or wear masks, even though that was a recommendation, because they really wanted to support that war effort. And then so after that, they just seem to have moved on. So without anything like that this time around, I, you know, I do wonder if, you know, what that remembrance would look like, whether it's, you know, like an official COVID day or something like that, or how it might manifest in space.
4: Well, the fact that um, somehow this, so the pandemic also coincides with not only with the social justice movement, but also reckoning about uh, or rethinking about monuments. Um, uh, And so an awareness, I think we have a a kind of abiding awareness awareness at this moment that, um, you know, the way that history has been memorialized to date has been in the form of, you know, single heroic figures, um, and I think we have this very uh, uh, clear understanding that uh, the experience that we're having now is not a is not one that was lived or or um, led by um, individuals, but rather a, a mass um, experience, uh, and so you know given the given the fact that we're re- rethinking memorials these days I, I i feel like there is you know that it 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 opens the re- the the thinking um to encompass some you know something that would um that would address that the mass character of what we're going through what we have gone through Like, I don't think we need um, bronze statues of Dr. Bonnie Henry, but I think that the appropriate thing is, you know, is something that, that expresses the collective experience that we have had.
2: Something quick I want to add to that. Yeah, even early on, there was the 7 p.m. tier, right? Like everybody wanted to share in that experience. Um, But as you mentioned, Jermaine, you know, there, you know, there are flaws to that memorializing. And, you know, people at that time were saying like, oh, well, why is it in all of these windows we're talking about? Thank you. Like healthcare workers. What about everybody else on the front lines as well?
5: Yeah, just um, kind of piggybacking on both of those ideas and responding to I just popped into the chat uh, a really interesting um, article that Aphrodite circulated to the panelists uh, before this event. Um, And there's a a comment kind of building on the ideas presented there about um, the irony of this pandemic and the grief that people are incurring daily, uh, and the fact that one of the kind of remedies to grief or, or ways to support through it. Is to come together, and and that that's been precisely the, the like dangerous no go zone for uh, throughout the pandemic. So it seems to me that uh, how whatever however we move through this, um, one of the ways that we're going to process uh, what has been a really um, traumatic event around everyday spaces and beloved people suddenly becoming threats. Uh, to well-being because they might be vectors of virus. I think that um, I think gathering and the the cheer is one example of that, right? It's a way of of people gathering, so yeah. Although I, I, I don't know if I would say no to the bronze uh, statue of Bonnie Henry. I totally, um, I totally take the point, and I think that there's, um, I think that whatever, I don't know if memorial is even the word I would use, but I think that it's about like gathering, collective action, coming together, being together. I think that's, I think that's how how we heal.
4: But I think also like so, if has to be a statue if it has to be a bronze statue, I think it should be a bronze, it should be along the lines of the unknown soldier. Yeah. Right. Sure. Because, because the memorials to the unknown soldier are ones that, that, um, that recognize the importance of, uh, of people who are on the front lines. Right. Yeah, and that's, yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, yeah, right. so the thing, you know, the, the, hopefully the one thing, or one of the things that we all are coming away from this this experience with is is a greater appreciation for um, who exactly is essential in our in our cultures, and that's mm-hmm. the people. It's that's the grocery store workers, right? So, yeah, great point. Uh,
1: so Aphrodite was mentioning that some museums are collecting stories and images, so there might be exhibits in the future uh, about that and. Uh, another person has commented, they're still doing the 7 p.m. cheer at Renfrew and First, which I didn't know. And I think in the West End a bit, uh, right? Yeah. Um, okay. I uh, There was one more question, but I think um, we're kind of winding down here. I don't want to totally exhaust people. So I know that this is uh, always, again, a bit of a brain breaker, but um, I'm going to ask the three of you any last thoughts on any of this that got brought up a point that you suddenly thought of as someone else was talking or, or based on a question. Any last things that you want to wrap up
5: with? I guess just one thing around um, kind of building on harsha and chris i guess everything that's been said is just the this is nothing really new or profound but just um just the different experiences in relation to public space that that various people in various walks of life have faced so whether your life has been pushed out onto the streets um or whether it's been i also like teaching university students who tell me that one of the first exercises I do with them at the beginning of the semester is ask them about a public space that they miss being in these days. So what do you miss? And, and the almost all of them, unless they have a job somewhere, tell me that they just spend time really at home now and often just in their room if they're living with their parents. So just that, that real like insular inward turning um, private space. So I'm, I'm just echoing what's been said, but that really rings true to me. The stakes of both uh and the kind of like uh challenges that come with both and and the real need for for places to gather public places to gather and to be with people you don't know intimately i think is um it's just come to me kind of just glaring to the forefront
1: hmm
2: Uh, something that I had been impressed by was uh, in, in Seattle, they they had closed um, a couple of streets like entirely like just for uh, off, uh, from cars and then allowing pedestrians to go on them. And I was speaking with the engineer, um, I guess it's pretty enterprising since he was an engineer <laughs> creating this kind of thing. Um, but he was, he was saying that a lot of black Seattleites, um, they were using, like they were walking on the road, but then a lot of people were saying that, Hey, like you can't, you can't do that. You're not allowed to be there. Um, not knowing that this was blocked off. So even though there was that innovation, um, it wasn't truly, you know, public for everybody too. So, I mean, if anything, I hope this, uh, post-pandemic, we realized that like, you know, despite having a lot of like public spaces, access to that public space um, is not the same. Um, And yeah, it it is, you know, it is, I mean, even it's sad to see somebody like Stanley going to like a patio to find a place to like charge his computer or seeing, um, you know, certain people meet up like in a bunch of cars in a parking lot. I think that kind of resilience to me is, is quite impressive, but at the same time too, like, just because people will find space to meet because it is a need of theirs. like top down, we shouldn't be ignoring the fact that we should be providing this um, to people as well.
4: Mm -hmm. Um, I guess so under behind my um, assertion that um, the arts are, are actually um, essential is um, is a um belief that there is you know there is nothing so healing as being uh as feeling like you have the power to um to act and to um uh you know, to do something about the, the 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 situation, and and of course, artists are used to thinking of themselves as creative, and 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 used to to um you know assuming that they have the right to think creatively and to think innovatively and to do something different. Um and and so I'm kind of hoping that one of the things that that we come out of this with is, um, uh, a a sharing of that um. Attitude that one actually has the uh, the right and the ability uh, to um, to go and, and do something in the world um, if uh, if if that's what is calls you you know
1: that's great thank you thanks for all of those very different thought provoking perspectives I hope it inspires people to go off and shut down their street. Paint it, play a game on it, or something like that. Um, right? Do yeah. It. <laughs> so, thank you very much, all of you.
0: Quite a different um, conversation for probably for you as well as me, Francis. In terms of, um, uh, you know, I spend most of my time thinking in terms of policies, and, and you know. Mm-hmm. And constructs, yeah. and um, and uh, just to have this panel really stretch my mind to think about the arts that 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 give that give space meaning, um, mm-hmm. and how they do that, and the different ways that we. I think my my biggest worry. Well, my biggest worry, from my own personal point of privilege about the city, is uh, during this pandemic, is that we will we won't know what we've lost (laughs) until, and we'll just adapt to new ways of 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 distancing ourselves from and and what you were saying, Alana, you know, thinking only inwardly, and um, and uh, that your stories, Chris, and and Alana, and Jermaine, your projects and your ways of thinking about how to inject. Uh, creative energy into the spaces that force us to think about how we are constrained and um, and choreographed. I really appreciate those. So thank you. So I found this conversation to be um, very stimulating. So th- um, thank you. And thanks to Francis for moderating. Um, thanks to all of our attendees for your participation. Um, Yep. So lots more events coming up from SFU Public Square. This will be and and, uh, please stay tuned and uh, keep uh, keep inspiring your own spaces. Have a good evening, everybody.